Listener Production. The following production includes explicit language and deals with adult themes. Parental guidance is advised for those under 15 years. Hello, I'm Adam Shand and welcome to Episode 6 of The Trials of the Vampire. Last time the investigation into the murder of Shane Chartres Abbott began, a man named Mark Adrian Perry had been identified by police as a person of interest. He was the former boyfriend of Penny, who Shane was accused of attacking. An associate of Perry told police he had been hell-bent on revenging his former girlfriend. I want to understand just who Mark Perry is and to ask what caused him to spend seven years on the run after a murder if he wasn't the killer. I just had a call from Mark Perry. I tried to reach him through mutual contacts but heard nothing back. I didn't expect to. As I started writing this episode, I gave it another shot. And within the hour, Perry called. The voice on the line was soft, but the tone was cold. He wanted to know who I worked for and what I was doing. I explained myself and suggested a meeting. No, he said. He wanted to be left alone. He was a loner these days. He couldn't even see his daughter, he said. So I agreed to leave him alone. He has that right. He's been convicted of no crime. He wished me a good day and hung up. Chip Legrand of The Australian is the only journalist that Mark Perry has met with to date. Perry's still considering if he'll tell his story in the newspaper. And it is a, you know, it is a fairly kind of little remarkable chapter. I mean, he was at that stage Australia's most wanted man. Remember, he had a million dollar reward uh, for any information leading to his arrest. So he's still, he's still, there's still part of him that says, I want to be vindicated, that I want to talk to journalists, I want to have some form of story told about me. Is that, is that where he's at? I think in some ways it's more... I think he just wants his story captured somewhere, if for no other reason, even just for his family. He's got a, he's got a daughter, his parents... Just so he would explain to people, well, this is what happened. Those seven years where I disappeared, this was my life. Did today's Mark Perry contrast for you stronger the image you may have had? So today's Mark Perry... Um, look, this sounds contradictory, but there's, there's a reservedness to him There's still a guardness to him, but at the same time, you can see how he would have been quite a gregarious personality at one point. I mean, he is still very much a sort of a social being, likes to have a chat, loves to to spin a yarn. Um, You know, obviously he's got a few to tell. Um, He's very disciplined, so he's he's, uh, extremely fit. He he trains every day in sort of a a mix of uh, martial arts and, and other things that he does. Uh, He does a bit of personal training on the side. So he's quite disciplined in some ways. And uh, and, and I guess like a lot of um, sort of the key figures in that that time in Melbourne, in that sort of late 1990s, early 2000s, I mean, you always got to question how much, how much, how many of the decisions and and actions were were partly just explained because they were also high at the time. I mean, and that was, you know, that was the police and the crooks. Now that he's sober, you, you can kind of see why albeit a fairly ill-chosen profession who was quite successful for a while in terms of his um, his level of um, organisation and, you know, he's got a lot of um, street smarts about him. In the early 2000s, Perry was riding high. There were plenty of women and willing criminal associates back then. All of them are gone now. 
and many gave Perry up to the cops on the way out. It's no wonder he prefers his own company these days. When the going got tough, his friends betrayed him one after the other. For a time, the power he felt seemed almost real. He talks like a gangster and tried to act like one. He would always talk tough, always wanting to take revenge. In 2002, at the time of the attack on Penny, Mark was in a relationship with another Thai woman known as June. They had a child together in 2003. At first, June didn't know what her boyfriend did for a living. June later gave two statements against him. An actor is narrating her evidence. He told me he was a personal trainer and a consultant real estate agent. He would always wear tracksuit pants and move back and forth. He would never have a routine or keep regular hours. All of his friends were rich. Mark would always have cash. Mark would always use drugs on the weekend. The majority of the times, he would use cocaine. This cover story didn't satisfy June for long. She threatened to go to the police if he didn't tell her the truth, and he opened up to her. Mark told me he wanted to give up the drugs life for me. He told me that when he was little, he was very poor. His parents had seven children, and because of this, he did not have a good education. His first job was a security guard at the Provincial Hotel in Fitzroy. It was there he started to meet a lot of people. At first, Perry was just selling marijuana, but later he stepped up to cocaine and other recreational powders and pills. Melbourne's illicit drug industry was thriving. Cheap party drugs like ecstasy and methamphetamine had transformed the nightlife of the city, and the people who supplied that demand were making fast fortunes. However, an intense battle for market share between the main factions was turning nasty and violent. Perry was on the fringes, but he wasn't immune to the suspicion and paranoia spreading over the ganglands. Mark would always talk tough, always wanting to take revenge. He would talk about his friends bashing people, burning cars, gangsters getting killed. Mark would talk about his friends taking revenge on people who did the wrong thing. Mark said he loved what he was doing because he was strong. He could do whatever he wanted and get away from the police. While I was with Mark, he would read the newspapers and would say, Oh look, my friend has been killed. I did not know who he was talking about, but it was about the gangster killings. June became enmeshed in Mark's criminal world. He threatened that if I opened my big mouth, he would put drugs in my bag and then I would be in big trouble. I felt that I was being used by him. If he went out at night, he would make me go with him in the car. I told him that if he was dealing drugs, I did not want to be with him. He assured me that he just wanted my company. He was a sweet talker and a dreamer and would always talk shit. But June stayed with Mark throughout turbulent times in 2002. She said that in August, he abruptly departed the state and bought a house on the Gold Coast in Queensland with an associate. This was around the time of the attack on Penny. He was very, very scared and that's why he went there. He said that he wanted to get away as he was sick of everything in Melbourne. While he was there, he would travel up and down all the time from Queensland to Sydney. The sea change in Queensland didn't last long, according to June. By New Year's Eve, Mark was back in Melbourne, renting a city apartment, which he later bought. After a short time, he started getting stressed and depressed. He talked about a lot of people who had betrayed him and that he started running out of money. To this point, June was unaware of Penny's existence and her relationship with Mark. I found a woman's telephone number and address. It was a Thai lady. Mark told me that somebody had bashed and raped his ex-girlfriend very bad and that he was trying to help her. Mark became increasingly erratic, disappearing for days on end without explanation. There were violent arguments with June, followed by remorse and attempts to buy her forgiveness. 
She left him numerous times, but again and again he won her back. In March 2003, June was expecting Mark's child. In October that year, four months after Shane's murder, June could no longer tolerate the mood swings and mysterious absences. Seven months pregnant, she returned to Thailand, but Mark followed and she took him back. He was the father of my child. He wanted another chance. He again said he had changed. He would be a good man. They bought a house together at Pattaya Beach, a haven for tourists 100 kilometres east of Bangkok. Mark told me he had sorted out all his problems in Melbourne and he did not want to go back there at all. June gave birth to their daughter in December 2003, but the new father wasn't around for long. Mark returned to Melbourne but came back and forth to Thailand three or four times. June thought he was back with Penny. On one of the times he came back, he told me that the man who raped Penny had been killed. Mark said this man who came out of jail had been killed. I asked why they do this. Mark said because he was mental. I thought to myself, this is the reason why Mark came to Thailand to see me. I was so scared. I told him that if he wants to start a new life with me, he cannot talk about this anymore. Mark's new life in Pattaya included business associates like Marcus Hilton, an English drug dealer with Australian connections. Hilton was living like a lord in Pattaya Beach in a mansion worth a million pounds. He had a factory churning out ecstasy and methamphetamines for sale in the UK and Europe. Perry's house was next door to Hilton's in Pattaya's upmarket Jomtien Palace Village, according to police intelligence. Perry was making trips to Europe and Colombia in South America on cocaine business with Hilton. At the same time back in Melbourne, investigators were following Perry's progress through credit card transactions and travel bookings. The paper trail showed Perry making regular visits home, but only staying for a few days at a time. Police seemed in no hurry to bring him in for questioning on these visits to Melbourne. Former police I've spoken to are surprised that Perry was allowed to come and go so freely. Chris Costo is a former Victoria Police detective. He's taken a vital interest in this case for reasons we'll get to soon. The suspect was nominated on the 16th of, of June. So you would assume that you know, some initial work would have been done and at some stage it would have said, you know what, let's go and grab Mark Perry. Time to a story. We don't care what he says. Let him say that he was down at the bottom of the garden with Tinkerbell and Peter Pan who were picking posies. We don't care. Put him time to a story. This was not done. Charlie Bazina was a senior investigator with the Homicide Squad at the time, but he wasn't on this case. He told me there was a rationale for giving Perry a long lead. Because in this case, the, the critics of the police investigation say there was a strong argument to pull Perry in at that point and just register his demeanour, get something on tape, even if it's no comment. Would you, would you have done that? No, not at all. Not at all. In the day and the age we live in now, you know, you work on the premises of investigators, that's, you bring someone in, they're going to say no comment, especially if they've got some criminal background. Is it tactfully for us, we bring the person in and we put the allegations to him and, and uh, we get his side of the story. That's one aspect. The second aspect is we bring him in and he says, OK, Charlie, I'm here. Well, what do you want? Well, I want to talk to you about the, uh, the Charter Sabbath murder. Yeah, know nothing about it. You know, I start looking silly about saying specific things. So, And you've twigged him. Exactly. Then all of a sudden, you're not going to identify your witness. I've got information that suggests ABC. OK, that will work to an advantage that's going to put him on alert. You know, the seasoned crook knows about not talking on phones, not talking in homes. But crooks become lazy, and they will talk on them. 
And they've been major drug dealers in the past, and they do. They, invariably, they know about telephone intercepts, yet they continue to talk on them. Because they didn't have any evidence that placed him on the scene. Correct. There was no phone towers, there was nothing. All they had was the hearsay evidence. So, your experience, it's better to wait till you get something from More the often than not. But then again, it might be, one of your starting points is to say, okay, we'll bring him in, and let's see what his, what his uh, alibi is. Well, look, we've got an allegation that you may have been involved in the China Sapper murder. Uh, he can put up his ironclad alibi and says, well, I was in Thailand at the time, but we can support that through travel documents. Like, okay, well, I was in uh, I was in Wollongong at the time. A lot harder to do it. Who were you with? Okay, these guys are going to swear black and blue that this guy was with him at the time. Hard alibi to break. So then ultimately you're setting him up. He then starts setting up his defence at that stage if he needs to set up his defence. Uh, so they're the things that are going through the investigator's mind. Of course, Perry wasn't the only suspect. Shane had told a number of people that he feared an Asian gang in cahoots with St Kilda Police was after him. Penny was being led astray by a corrupt network involving high rollers at Crown Casino, police, magistrates and politicians, he said. It sounded far-fetched, that is, until he was murdered, when every possibility had to be assessed. But how to substantiate such vague intel was the challenge. Listening devices were planted in Penny's house, but they came up empty. And there was nothing to connect the local Asian crime factions with this. The only name police had was Chusak, the Thai national who'd accompanied Penny to the hotel on the night she was attacked. He was a witness for the Crown in Shane's rape trial, but you'll recall even the prosecutor found him untrustworthy. And then that said that witness, there was something uncomfortable about how when he was asked questions, as if he was... Uh, he knew things that he didn't want to reveal. Chusak was shifty and evasive in the box, but he gave nothing away, and he was long gone. But maybe not forgotten. I found a story from November 2003 on a German-language news site in Thailand, the Pattaya Blatt. A man of the same name, Chusak, and the same age, 37, and the same business, was arrested in a dramatic air and seaborne operation, targeting an illegal floating casino in the Gulf of Thailand. Dozens of police repelled from helicopters onto the deck of the Olivia, a 16,000-tonne vessel registered in the Ukraine. Other cops were already on board posing as gamblers and covertly filmed the activities on board. 58 people were arrested, including Chusak. He was found guilty of illegal bookmaking and sentenced to three months jail. I located Chusak in Pattaya, Thailand, through an advertisement he placed to sell a block of apartments he owned. He confirmed that he was the same man, but ultimately it matters little. Without further evidence, Trusak remains just a shadowy connection, an insinuation of the evil forces that Shane conjured up. The Asian gang theory wasn't followed up. No one took seriously the gigolo and his snuff movie stories. The police investigation continues after this break. Over the next year, police watched Mark Perry from a discreet distance as Operation Clonk ground its way forward. In April 2005, Perry and June returned to Australia with their baby daughter. But still, police didn't pull him in for questioning. In September of that year, investigators appealed for help through the media. They were seeking a man named Mark Andrew, which of course was Mark Perry's alias. Included in the release was an identical picture of Andrew's, which, naturally enough, bore a striking resemblance to Perry. It drew immediate results. Another insider stepped up with information. Information from confidential source. Mark Andrew is the boyfriend of the woman that Shane Chartres Abbott raped. 
A couple of days prior to the murder of Chartres Abbott, a friend of Mark's by the name of who is known as said that he'd been talking to Mark and Mark told him to watch the papers as something is going to happen. This sounded a lot like Perry's business partner, Roberto. The caller went on. About four months after the murder, Mark said that the police suspected he did the shooting. Mark then left Australia for Thailand and I haven't seen him since. He was missing for a while and we thought he was dead. I found out that he's currently in jail in Spain. If anyone would know where Mark was, it would be... The caller was right. Roberto knew exactly where Mark was. But police knew Roberto wasn't in a Spanish jail. He was living in an apartment in Melbourne South. On the 10th of September, Perry jetted home from his latest sojourn in Thailand and police tracked him to Roberto's place. Listening devices were planted in the apartment the following day. On the 26th, police fronted the media on the 5pm news and Perry and Roberto were home in front of the TV. Detective Sergeant Trevor Smith of the Homicide Squad was listening for their reactions through the bugs. An actor is narrating from a statement of what he heard. Perry continued to watch the news until 6pm. During this time, Perry received a number of phone calls. At 5.08pm, Perry said something similar to, someone's rung in. After this, there was no mention of the aforementioned media release between Perry and... There were periods of silence until the sport came on towards the end of the program. There was then conversation between Perry and... about football whilst watching the sport on television. Perry and... remained at the unit until they left at 7.05pm. During this time, I found the lack of conversation between Perry and during and after the media release was conspicuously suspicious. In other words, Smith thought that his targets were aware of the listening device and kept their mouths shut. Many crooks I've met assume they're bugged all the time. Mostly it's drugs that fuel this delusion. But occasionally they're right and someone is listening. There's another possible explanation for the silence. Perry told Chip Legrand that Roberto had been asleep during the media release, hence the silence. But that seems unlikely. The media release yielded one more curious piece of information. Apparently, Kathleen Price's sister Frances had contacted Crime Stoppers. You'll recall she was living with Shane and Kathleen in 84 Howard Street Reservoir at the time of the murder. She told Crime Stoppers she'd recognised the image of Mark Andrew in the media release with another man he had been watching their house in the days before the murder. At the time of Chartres Abbott's death, she was working in a service station starting at 4pm and finishing at 1am. She saw the vehicle, a new model Ford Falcon or Fairlane sedan, gold, and two males when leaving for work and returning home. The vehicle was parked outside the house that was between them and the laneway. The caller, Francis allegedly, said she told Shane about this on the night before his death. But by all accounts, Shane kept this to himself. The caller described one male as mid to late 30s, six foot, tanned, blue eyes, short blonde hair. Stated that she recalled Chartres Abbott saying that he met a male around his sister's place who told him to be careful. Believe this male was a friend of the victim's boyfriend called Mark. This intel and the physical description the caller gave again pointed back to Mark Perry. But again, Shane never mentioned this to anyone else. He was concerned about Asian gangs and corrupt police, not Mark Perry. 
The investigators considered asking Francis to view an identity parade, presumably with Mark Perry included in the lineup, but that never happened. I contacted Shane's lawyer, Ross Privatelli. I asked why had Francis taken so long to share this knowledge. Look, I, I know it was a long time ago, but Francis's position is that she denies having made the statement. In fact, he says that she denies having any knowledge of the statement. So I think mm. when it was provided, uh, it may have come as a complete surprise to her. There really probably would have been no reason for her to, to say that. Um, so I, my view is that she's uh, she's putting her position truthfully uh, and, and yeah. has no knowledge of the statement. Um, you know, I'm not quite certain why... It wasn't followed up by the police in terms of identifying who who, uh, who the person was who made the statement. Victoria Police won't comment on the alleged call from Francis. In any case, nothing came of the information and Mark Perry's freedom continued. It's fair to say that Victoria Police were busy at the time. Vic Pohl's elite Piranha Task Force was mopping up the blood of the gangland war, which was nearly at an end. A wall of silence had crumbled in 2004-05 and hitmen were lining up to inform on their former bosses. Deals were on the table for the right stories. Reductions in sentences, waiving of tax bills, immunity from asset seizures, even if the testimony did not lead to a conviction. One such individual saw a golden opportunity. We can't name him for legal reasons. We can't discuss his criminal history or his possible links to other cases because that might tend to identify him. His own lawyer describes him as a great storyteller. So I shall call him the author. When you hear the story he tells, you may well agree. The author tested the waters in an interview with a homicide detective, Peter Trickias. Former cop, Chris Costo. This guy's an inmate at the time, and he was being interviewed in relation to other matters. There, out of the blue, he points to the inside of his... A hand, and where in big letters he had the word vampire in capital letters. From the moment that first writes the word vampire on his hand and shows that to uh, Peter Trickius, who's one of the um, piranha detectives at the time, he does that with the full knowledge that what police want more than anything is to find corrupt police that are involved in the, in the gangland war. As a result of police investigations into other matters, I've decided to cooperate with police in relation to the death of a person. I believe his name was Shane Chartres Abbott, otherwise nicknamed in the press as The Vampire. On the 5th of July 2006, the author greeted two detectives who'd come to see him in prison. He said he was ready to tell them a story. I'm unable to remember exactly the date and the year as I've been in custody now for over years on other matters. I wish to make it clear that this incident was not a contract killing. It was an incident that transpired as a result of the deceased's assault on a number of females. It came to my knowledge that the deceased in his role as a male escort had brutally inflicted injuries on more than one female victim. So it was for personal reasons, a result of a favour for a favour. I decided to help eliminate a person whom I regarded as an animal and a danger to other females. It was a revenge killing. Suddenly Shane was a rampaging serial rapist and the author was a killer, but at the same time, a man of principle. He named another victim. Shane had attacked a client named Little Carol, who had later killed herself over the trauma. It was a nice flourish, but detectives could never find any evidence to support it. 
Little Carol's demise, much like her existence, remains a mystery to this day. At the beginning, the author's sense of honour, he claimed, prevented him from giving up his accomplices. Because of my reluctance to incriminate others, I can say and only say that I participated in the death of the deceased and I make this statement in an abstract way to avoid implicating others. That reluctance would not last very long. He was still building his story, working out what to tell police and when. The first statement evolved over several days. Initially, the author could not even remember the name of the street, so one of the detectives gave him a leg up. She showed him a printed street directory. I've looked in a Melwave today and I'm able to recall and describe the street where the deceased lived, which is Howard Street Reservoir. I'm also able to recall the getaway route as described yesterday. He also recalled performing surveillance on Shane's house prior to the murder from a car park at the railway station a few hundred metres away. After reading this, I went to the scene to check the story with the help of a local named Marilyn. Oh, we've got a plane going over here there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Is this a flight path here? Do you get many planes? Yeah, um, more helicopters. <laughs> more helicopters, I see. Yeah. I asked Marilyn about vantage points in the street. She pointed to a bus stop at the end of Howard Street on High Street, which looks straight down to Shane's old house. Down the street, you could spot someone. The way it's set yeah. up. Then you've got the laneway. You didn't have that big tree there. So if someone was coming out, you could see someone walking yeah. out the door. And you reckon the bus stop, you got High Street, then across yeah, the road. Yeah, someone could have sat there, given the nod that he's coming out, you know what I'm saying, and yeah. done something that way. But you know, someone confessed to killing Shane. Do you know that? No, no. Okay, he, he confessed. And what he said was he claimed he was in the car park at the railway station. Oh, yeah. Doing surveillance on the house. Do you think that would be possible? Could you see? Do you reckon anything from the railway? No. 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 No, you got the, you got the no. machine. That's uh, always panel been service. there. It was a yeah, different factory. under a different name then. But you would have had to have either been up there or in the street. So someone who reckons they've been looking from the railway car park is either mistaken or they're telling lies. Telling lies. That's bullshit. Truly bullshit. This was an obvious flaw in the story. You simply can't see 84 Howard Street from the railway car park. It's obscured by the six-metre wall of a workshop on the corner. There were other problems with his recollections of the murder scene. From my information and observations, I thought that the deceased lived on his own. The deceased left his house, accompanied moments later by another male and female. This came as a total surprise, but the wheels were in motion and I acted spontaneously. Kathleen and her father, Jerry, told a different story in which Shane was the last, not the first, to leave the house. I walked out the front door first, then my dad, and then Shane. I was trying to get out the door quickly to shut it before one of the rot wheelers got out. Dad and I walked along the grass beside the driveway. Shane was behind us. I walked down the driveway and Shane was a bit behind me and Kathleen a few paces behind also. The killers were behind Kathleen and Jerry when they confronted Shane. In the author's story, it was the exact opposite. Shane was the first to leave the house. I placed myself between the deceased and his companions, and in doing so, I physically bumped them. It was done to extricate him from the other two so that no harm could come to them as a result of a stray bullet or something else unforeseen. As we know, Jerry Price got clobbered in the face by one of the killers. I would have been next to the letterbox when out of the blue I felt a blow to the head. I don't know what hit me or from where. The blow caused me to fall to the ground. But the author stoutly denied this. There was no personal physical assault, although there was physical contact to ensure their safety and the ability to carry out the shooting of the deceased as quickly as possible. 
I'm aware there was some sort of allegation that one of the deceased's companions was physically assaulted. This is simply not true. I fired two shots from a 357 revolver. I know that one of those shots hit the deceased in the head-neck region. It's hard to say, as his defensive reaction to being confronted by a firearm made his movements a little erratic. By that, I mean he was kind of ducking. I fired two shots, and I'm sure both hit the mark. With the first shot, I was aiming for his chest, and the second, I presume, it was around his head-neck area. I have some recollection of seeing black around the deceased's shirt or neck area. This could have been when he was going down. This cold and matter-of-fact description of the killing was at odds with the forensic evidence. Two shots fired at very close range. No aiming required when the gun is millimetres from the target. At the time of the incident, I was wearing blue denim jeans, runners, a grey roll-neck jumper and a dark-coloured beanie. The beanie was pulled down my forehead not to obscure my vision and the roll-neck jumper was rolled up to the bridge of my nose and acted like a kind of balaclava. This part of the author's story did tally with evidence from the witnesses, but this information was already in the public domain through the media. The suspects are described as thin to medium build, one wearing a beanie and a scarf, the other had a jumper pulled up concealing his face. The police needed names to help stack up the author's claims, and soon he complied. The first name was Warren Shea. He claimed he met Warren Shea in a restaurant in South Melbourne nine days before Shane's murder. The attack on Penny was the reason for the meeting. If someone close to our circle is treated in this manner, it's a case of touch one, touch all, and we take matters personally. The victim's ex-partner was closely associated with Warren, and it was the wishes of the ex-partner to have Chartres Abbott dealt with as a reprisal for the attack. My understanding of what Warren was asking to be done, in not so many words, was breaking every bone in his body right through to killing him. I told Warren, leave it up to me, and that the matter would be dealt with. I recall saying, he is an animal and a piece of shit and deserves to go. Consider it a favour. According to the author, Shay handed over a piece of paper with Shane's address and description, and a free hit was set in motion. But the author needed backup for this execution. He named an ex-boxer, Evangelist Gusis, as his accomplice. Ange, as he was known, was facing life in jail for two other gangland hits, so a third murder charge was the last thing he needed. But we'll deal with that story in the next episode. Ange was never asked by me to participate in this killing. He naturally volunteered as a matter of principle and because Ange was obligated to me for helping him out in the past in relation to his safety. And in this first statement, the killer helped police find a murder weapon. He said it was to be found in open water off a swimming enclosure at Eastern Beach in Geelong. I disposed of the firearm by throwing it into the open water. I, and I alone, disposed of the firearm at this location, and as such, I'm the only one that has knowledge of the firearm's existence and its whereabouts. This is the firearm that I used to kill Chartres Abbott. The authors claim that he used a 357 Magnum to kill Shane might have raised questions. Kathleen saw the gun and described it as being grey and... And about five inches long, and looked like something off old TV shows and cops and robbers. The shots were like a popping noise like a cap gun, not really loud. Just for comparison, this is the sound of a 357 Magnum. Not exactly a cap gun, is it? 
The author was taken from prison to the swimming enclosure at Eastern Beach and showed police where and how he'd thrown the gun. He told them they would find two spent cartridges in the revolver and four live rounds. Police divers began a slow and painstaking search of the sea floor. They found nothing on the first day, but visibility was less than three metres. A second dive was made in worse conditions two days later, and still nothing. A third dive was made on July 16, when visibility was up to six metres. And within half an hour, Senior Constable Rebecca Kasky signalled the target had been located. At 12.45, I saw a bright orange object on the seafloor. On closer examination, I found that it was a large revolver. The firearm was lying with its barrel pointing out to sea. It was lying on its side, but just protruding out of the sand. This was a remarkable find for investigators. More than three years after the murder, the gun was exactly where the author said it would be. But there were two problems with the gun. Firstly, there weren't two spent cartridges inside. In fact, there were no rounds in the revolver at all. The cylinders were packed with grease, as if the firearm had been carefully preserved and stored for later use, not thrown away in haste after a hit. Secondly, the gun was so badly corroded, it could not be matched to the bullets that killed Shane. So, there was no physical evidence linking the author with the hit. At this stage, the police did not doubt the author, even though some of his details were dodgy. Who in their right mind would confess to a murder they hadn't committed? How would a false confession possibly be of benefit to the author? He knew ultimately what police wanted and he knew the value of that. He knew that if if he could construct a story that would lead to suspicion, perhaps even um, a charge of police on serious crimes connected with the gangland war, that that would buy him an enormous amount of leverage in terms of being able to improve his own situation and probably most importantly to be in control. And to settle scores with people he may have crossed or crossed him in the previous part. That's it, he's in the driver's seat from that point. So when, when confessed to shooting Shane Chartres Abbott in the, in the plea arrangement that was struck, and again, it was something that was done behind uh, closed doors, both in terms of the, the negotiations and ultimately in terms of the plea hearing before the Supreme Court, he didn't have to spend an extra day in jail for this murder. And he got this one for free. As I learn more about the author's evidence, I'm struck by his total lack of remorse for killing Shane. The notion that he was morally, if not legally, justified in what he did. It's as if Shane was just an animal that had to be put down. A sick, crazy loner whom society was better off without. And of course, this was the media image created of Shane. The vampire gigolo, a callous beast, depraved and dehumanised. In the next episode of The Trials of the Vampire, the author begins volume two of his confession and gives up more of his associates, including past and serving police officers, for what he claimed to be their involvement in the murder of Shane Chartres Abbott. Do you think you're a victim of your own reputation in a way? Well, I think an easy target. The Trials of the Vampire is a real crime production. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Producer, writer and narrator is Adam Shand. Editing, mixing and original music score is by Matt Nikolic. Research by Nicole Gunn. Additional research by Alison Caldwell. Associate producer is Carly Humby. Listener.